Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to, well, I was going to say it's good to see you. It's a force of habit. It's good to be with you. Thank you for joining our live stream. And before we pray and begin, I want to remind you all one more time that uh, next week is Passion Week, and uh, we will not have a Wednesday service, uh, Wednesday evening. We will have a Good Friday service live streamed at 7 o'clock. And then, of course, we will have our Resurrection Sunday service at 10 o'clock in the morning, also on uh, live stream via Facebook and, uh, uh, and um, YouTube. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, this morning in Jesus' precious name, and we give everything to you, Lord. We uh, would much rather see each other face to face, but uh, Lord, we just operate this morning according to what you have ordained, and we ask that you would bless this message for your glory and, and just bring it forth in the power of your Spirit, that hearts would be ministered to and uh, you'd be glorified. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, guys, welcome. We have this morning come to the third Sunday of our forced sequester and uh, to the third part in a special series we've been doing. We're calling Life's Essential Ingredients. There's a saying that I'm sure most of you have heard, which goes, the most important things in life are the things that money can't buy. Now, I realize that that statement is somewhat trite. I'm sure that uh, more than a few young people are rolling their eyes uh, to hear me say that. I mean, I get that. But listen, even though that statement is trite, it is nonetheless true. When God created us, he created us with a hunger within our souls, a hunger for certain essentials that make life, listen, not only worth living, without which would make life impossible to live. These things are the things that money can't buy, the things that we often take for granted, not realizing how much they do mean to us until they're gone. One thing about adversity, that's what we're kind of living through right now with this forced sequester. One thing about adversity is that it has a way of stripping our lives of the extraneous, of the things that we don't need to live which often distract us, these um, extraneous things, often distract us from the things that money can't buy, the things that make life worth living. In this series, we've been looking at life's essentials. We said there are three of them. We looked at the first two, the first two weeks. We looked at peace and then hope last week. And this morning, we'll look at the third essential, and that is love. Now, guys, love falls into two categories, human love and then God's love. You know, the English language really only has one word for love, which kind of leaves us at the mercy of the context to figure out the depth and the degree of the love I'm talking about. For example, when I say I love pizza and then I love my wife, well, you're left to figure out, do I love pizza less than my wife or as much as my wife or more than my wife? Well, that's a dumb example, but you get what I mean, all right? The New Testament was written in Greek, and unlike the English, the Greek language corrects this in that it has several words for love. I'm talking about human love now. First of all, the Greeks have the word eros, from which we get our English words erotic and erogenous. This is a word that represents the idea of lust and sexual passion, a word that is really more about the biological act of sex than it is about love. Secondly, the Greeks had another word for love, the word storge, 
which is a word that speaks of family love, and in particular, the love of a mother for her children, very special love. And then the Greeks had a third word to describe human love, the Greek word phileo, which means affection, friendship kind of love, brotherly or reciprocal love. The, the idea is, I love you because you love me. We're BFFs, we're buds. You know, we have this mutual love for each other. That's phileo love. Now listen, all human beings have been, have been given by God the ability to love. And inherent within all of us is the need to be loved. That's just how God has wired us. I saw the results of a study that was done years ago in another country with babies in a state-run orphanage. One group of babies were held and cuddled throughout the day. The other group received no human touch at all. No one held them, cuddled them, or kissed them. What the study showed, as horrible and as cruel as it was, by the way, but what the, the study showed was that the babies that were held grew up to be emotionally stable and psychologically well-balanced, whereas the babies that were not held grew up with severe emotional problems and were psychologically damaged. Love is something that we need as human beings. Again, God has wired us that way. We absolutely need it. In fact, in some ways, we crave it more on a psychological level than we do even crave food on a physical level. This was driven home to me years ago when I was watching a documentary, and I, I believe it was a, a, a group of Christian missionaries. I think that was the context. And uh, they had gone to uh, Africa, uh, to a place in Africa that was experiencing drought and, and famine. And they brought much needed uh, medical supplies, and they also brought food, uh, much of it in the form of what's called atmet, Atmet, which is a porridge that contains an incredible amount of nutrients and is easy for the body to digest. They give it to starving people because their systems have shut down and so on. And so they passed out these bowls of porridge and uh, the children uh, were eating out of the bowls. And one of the little girls eating this porridge sees one of the missionary gals not far from her. She sets down her porridge on the ground and runs up to the missionary lady and gives her a big hug. And I thought to myself, here is a child that is starving, physically starving. And yet at this moment, she is craving more physical touch and expression of love than she was even craving food for her body. That really said something to me. That tells me how much God has designed us with a psychological or a emotional need to be loved. Now, let me just say this. Human love is a powerful thing. It's a powerful thing, although it's not perfect by any means, all right? Often human love is polluted by self-interest. You say, well, what are you talking about? Well, there is many a man who says that he loves a woman, and listen, he maybe sincerely believes he does, but in reality, he really loves himself more than he loves her, which is the real reason he's with her. You say, what do you mean? Well, what happens is often is that a, a man, you know, thinks he loves a woman, but he really loves himself. And the idea is he uh, likes the way she makes him feel when they're out in public. And the way because of her beauty, other men look at the two of them and envy him for having, you know, landed such a beautiful woman. And that makes him feel good about himself. That bolsters his self-esteem, his ego, right? And uh, it's, it's a Hollywood type of love. Uh, the kind of love that says, I love you because of the way you make me feel when we're together. 
And if the day should ever come when you stop making me feel good about myself, in other words, maybe you get fat or old, well, then I'll find someone new who will make me feel good about myself and special once again. Then, of course, there are many women who uh, love a man, many a woman who uh, has loved a man, but her love is also rooted in selfishness and self-interest, um, where they really love themselves more than the guy they married. Maybe they don't realize it, but um, they married this guy because of all the things he was able to give her in the way of material possessions and financial security. But because her love, excuse me, because her own self-interest is at the heart of her so-called love for him, it usually means she's got her eyes open looking for a better deal, better deal to come along. You know, another guy who's maybe, I don't know, better looking or has more money and can give her more things. Such is the nature of human love rooted in the heart of fallen man. It is often selfish and self-serving. And the tragedy is that more times than not, people are blind to it. They don't even realize it's in their heart. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? There are things in my heart I'm not even aware of. All right, Things that God sees, but I'm blinded to. I want to just say this, though. All right, Even though all that's true, and human love is often really polluted with self-interest and selfishness, uh, that doesn't mean that all expressions of human love are corrupted by self-interest. I mean, there are many examples of human love that are incredibly selfless. Uh, like the story I heard about a few years ago. It was about um, a soldier who dove in a hand grenade that had been thrown into the foxhole where he and his fellow soldiers were, using his body to shield them from the blast, sacrificing his life for theirs. I think we would all say that's a pretty selfless act of love. Or, like the 72-year-old Italian priest I just read about, Father Giuseppe Berardelli, who was infected with the coronavirus, but gave his respirator, the one his parishioners had bought for him, gave it to another young man, another patient who had the virus, whom he didn't even know, and wound up sacrificing his life to save him. You know, Jesus said, Greater love is no one than this, than to lay down his life for his friends, how much more so to lay down your life for a stranger. And while we're at it, guys, how about the thousands and thousands of doctors, nurses, EMTs, and other health care providers all across our nation who are working nonstop, putting their own lives at risk every day to tr treat those who are sick with the coronavirus? I mean, we could go on and on with stories of selfless love demonstrated by people from all over the world, every walk of life. The question is, how does this kind of love, how is this kind of love possible coming from fallen human beings? The answer is because they have been made in the image of God, who is himself love, 1 John 4, 8. And that brings us to God's love. The Greeks had another word for love, a word they used to describe an all-consuming love, a word that the Christians pretty much took for themselves and used to describe God's love, the word agape, agape. Now, we must be careful here, because I've heard pastors say that the Greek language really had no word to describe God's love. And so the Christian church had to invent one, and they came up with this word agape, invented by the church, used exclusively in the New Testament to speak of God's love. Now, I've heard that from pastors. 
And yet, you read what Jesus said in Luke eleven forty three. He said, Woe to you Pharisees, for you love. The Greek is agapao, the verb form of agape. For you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. You see, the Pharisees were consumed, unconditionally consumed, by a love of prestige and for the praise and recognition of men. They were obsessed with it. And so in that regard, they agape the best seats in the synagogue to sit up front, places of honor. And the greetings in the marketplaces where people would fall all over them with praise, my rabbi, my rabbi means my great one, my teacher. They loved that. They, they craved it. They agape it, unconditional obsession with it. However, guys, it is true that by far the most common use of the word agape in the New Testament with, uh, with, re, uh, with regard to love is a connection with God's love. That, that by far, that's the greatest example of how the word agape is used in the New Te Testament in connection with God's love, which is an all-consuming, unconditional love characterized by selflessness and sacrifice. John 3.16, which I hope you are looking over my head reading, but in John 3.16, the Lord Jesus said, for God so loved, agape, the world, that he gave. Agape love always is giving. Right? It's a giving love. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God's love is an all-consuming, unconditional love that loves freely, listen, regardless of, of how that love is returned, if returned at all. In that regard, God's love is vastly different from human love, which is often, not always, but often reciprocal. In other words, I love you because you love me, and conditional, I love you only when you treat me right and do what I say and give me what I want, etc. See, God's love is not like human love. The dictionary defines love, human love, like this. A profoundly tender, passionate affection for another person, a feeling of warm personal attachment or deep affection, as, a, as for a parent, excuse me, as for a parent, child, or friend, and then sexual passion or desire. Now, notice how the dictionary defines human love in terms of feelings. Feelings. God's love is not a feeling. It is a selfless action towards others in need. Again, John 3.16 tells us that. God's love is unconditional, universal, and non-discriminating. As the scriptures say, God so loves the world and he is no respecter of persons, which means that God loves everybody in this world. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, if you're rich or poor. Uh, it doesn't matter if, you know, you are a model citizen or the worst criminal on the planet. God loves you. God loves you. Know that. Human love is limited and can diminish over time. In fact, Jesus said that during the tribulation period, listen, the love of many would grow cold. Now, that's not just true of the coming tribulation period. The love of many a husband for his wife and wife for her husband has grown cold toward the person that they stood before God on the day of their wedding and pledged or vowed that they would love that person for better or for worse in sickness and in health for the rest of their lives. 
For many couples, it isn't until death do us part, it's until divorce do us part. Again, such is the nature of human love rooted in the fallen, selfish heart of man. It often has an expiration date attached to it. But God's love, agape, never diminishes and it never expires. Because God is the source of this love and God never diminishes or changes. We read in the Bible that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Human love, and I'm talking about the love of the world, as Jesus said, the world loves its own. The world loves its own. In other words, its own family, its own friends, its own sphere of influence, those that can benefit that person in some way. But God loves, God's love loves all. He loves everyone, even his enemies. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 and 45, Jesus commanded his disciples. He said, I say to you, love your enemies. Verse 45, in that way, you will be acting as a true child of God, true child of your Father in heaven, for he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust alike. So he blesses his kids, but he also blesses his enemies because God is love. You know, when people hear Jesus say that we are to love our enemies, uh, many people immediately respond, well, how can I love my enemies? I mean, how can I have feelings of love for my enemies? Well, you probably can't. But again, God's love isn't about feelings. You don't have to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 8, Paul the Apostle gives us the best definition and description of God's love in all the New Testament. And listen, he does it using all verbs. He does it using all verbs. Because God's love is not a feeling, it's actions. It's actions. And guys, that's how we can love people we have never met and have no feelings for during this crisis. By helping them in tangible ways and meeting their needs, picking up groceries or medicine for them, uh, you know, doing what you can to help them, especially if they're elderly and can't really get out of the house, shouldn't get out of the house, uh, because they're really susceptible to this thing. And uh, maybe a neighbor or an aunt or a relative or somebody like that. Find out what they need physically and try to meet that need. Try to go out to the store and get what they need and so on. Look, let me just say this. Loving people as God commands with his agape love is impossible for us. It's impossible for us. It is beyond our natural ability. This is not a love I can, you know, manufacture or produce out of my own fallen human heart. It is not in me to love like this because agape love is a divine supernatural love that only flows from God, who is its source. So then you ask, how can God command me to do something that is impossible for me to do? Well, God never tells us to do the impossible without supplying the ability to do it. And that ability comes in the person of the Holy Spirit who is living within us. The moment we receive Jesus into our hearts as our Savior, at that moment the Holy Spirit moved in and poured God's divine love into our hearts. Romans 5 verse 5 tells us. Paul the Apostle lists love, again agape love, God's love, in Galatians 5.22 as one of the fruits of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit are actually, listen, the attributes of God. The, God's attributes are intrinsic to his nature and to his nature alone. That means that unbelievers, what the Bible calls the natural man, 
cannot duplicate the attributes of God from a fallen heart. It's impossible. Which means he can fake the fruit of the Spirit, but he cannot make the fruits of the Spirit in truth. A lot of people fake love. They fake peace. They fake joy. But it's artificial fruit. Uh, it's fake. It's phony. Uh, only the Holy Spirit in the heart of a believer can produce the real thing, all right? Can produce the real thing. And um, it's only, guys, uh, the only way for a person to experience the attributes of God, I just kind of got ahead of myself, but the only way for a person to experience the attributes of God in their life, which again are exclusive to God's nature, is to have God's nature planted within them. And that only happens when they receive Jesus into their heart as their Savior and the Holy Spirit moves in. At that moment, as Peter tells us, they become partakers of God's divine nature. Once God's nature is planted within a person through the new, through the new birth, as they abide in him, listen, the fruit of the Spirit begins to grow. And it grows naturally as a byproduct of their relationship with Jesus. And the first one on the list that Paul talks about in Galatians 5.22 is love, agape, God's love. Look, as powerful as human love can be at times, and we've talked about some of the examples, God's love is the greatest force in the universe for changing a life. You know, there are many skeptics that would immediately challenge the idea that God is a God of love. They would say something to the effect, how could a God of love allow a horrible disease like this COVID-19 to infect and kill so many? How is that indicative of a loving God to allow such a thing? Well, there is an answer to that, an answer that few people are willing to accept. I'll give it to you. It could very well be that this pandemic is not an act of God's love at all, but actually a judgment on the part of God. We cannot flippantly dismiss the possibility that this pandemic is a judgment from God for sin. We can't dismiss that. We don't know that. People want to just dismiss it out of hand. Oh, that's ridiculous, that this is a judgment of God. Look at all the innocent people dying, children. And, well, I, you know, anytime God pours out judgment, there is collateral, collateral damage. That's true. I'm not minimizing that. I'm just saying don't so quickly dismiss out of hand the possibility that this whole COVID-19 thing, this pandemic worldwide, is a judgment from God uh, that he is using, not only in America, but around the world, to uh, bring people to a place of repentance. Listen, it wouldn't be the first time, or might I add the last time, that God used a pestilence, among other things, to bring judgment upon a group of people who refuse to repent of their sins. You don't have to turn these. You can write these down, though. Numbers 11, verses 11 to 12, when the children of Israel rebelled against God in the wilderness, God was going to destroy them. He was going to bring judgment upon them. Uh, here's what the Lord said to Moses. How long will these people reject me? And how long will they not believe me? With all the miracles which I have performed among them, I will strike them, listen, with pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make you, Moses, a nation greater and mightier than they. Well, of course, Moses fell on his face and interceded on behalf of the, of the people and God relented and did not bring the judgment. But you get an idea of how God uses these things to bring judgment. 
I'll give you the, another one. 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 37 to 40. I encourage you to read the whole thing when you get time. But really, uh, in that section, 1 Kings 8, 37 to 40, Solomon was praying to God as he's dedicating the newly built temple. Solomon had finally finished building the temple to God. And so he's dedicating it. He's praying to God. And uh, here's what he says in part. In verse 37, he said, When there is a famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew, locust or grasshopper, when their enemy, the people of God's enemy, besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all the people of the land of Israel, when each one knows the plague of his own heart, hold on to that, and spreads out his hands towards this temple, then here in heaven, O Lord, your dwelling place, and forgive and act and give to everyone according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you, you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men, that they may fear you and all, fear you all the days that they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. Listen to what Solomon is saying. Very important, and it really relates to what we're talking about. He is praying to God and says, Lord, you promised to bless us. You put us in this good land, and you said, if you obey me and you follow my commandments, I will bless you. Physically, you know, you'll have bumper crops, and your, you'll, your, you will, your wives will bear many children, so will your animals. It will be a, a real blessing for you. If you turn from me and begin to serve other gods, I will bring on you plagues and judgments and so on. And, and so Solomon is saying, Lord, look, if your people begin to sin against you and you bring these things, and he mentions plagues and pestilence, sicknesses and so on. Uh, and the people uh, in their hearts, they recognize the plague of their own heart. In other words, they recognize through these outward things that they have corrupted themselves, that their hearts have turned from you. Uh, they're no longer faithful to you, that they've sinned against you. And this causes them to repent. Lord, listen to their prayer and forgive their sins and heal our land. Guys, let me just say this to you. God's judgments have a multi-pronged purpose. To punish the wicked, awaken the righteous, and save the lost. We see this hinted at in what Habakkuk the prophet prayed when God told him he was going to bring judgment upon the southern kingdom of Judah and Habakkuk prayed, Lord, even in judgment, please don't forget to be merciful. That's Habakkuk 3, verse 2. Lord, even in judgment, please don't forget to be merciful. In 2 Peter 3, after Peter talks about the worldwide judgment that God brought uh, in the days of Noah, he then talks about another worldwide judgment that is coming in the future. But even as Peter prof was prophesying about coming judgment. He stops right in the middle of this and says in 2 Peter 3 verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise of coming judgment, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, God often gives people time. He often uh, sends prophets or today pastors and other people that are teachers to warn a nation that they have turned on God, they have turned their backs on him, and that judgment is going to ultimately come. And maybe even God begins to bring some lesser judgments, 
some smaller judgments that are designed to, you know, get the people's attention, and uh, so that they're 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 they realize what is going on, and uh, hopefully that they realize before this ultimate judgment comes and wipes them out through these lesser judgments. And I believe COVID nineteen could be one of these lesser judgments that God is using to get our attention through. That God is using this to these things to often get the attention of people. He uses these judgments in part to revive his church. I have seen Christians, their walk, which was dead in many ways, Christians who were asleep in the light, have been revived because of this whole thing. All right? So God will use these judgments in part to revive his church, but also to show mercy to the lost by creating fear in their hearts. Right, fear to hopefully bring them to Jesus for salvation. I believe that many people will wind up coming to Christ during this pandemic. Listen, people that wouldn't ordinarily come to church or listen to a sermon or Bible teaching. I wrote to a group of pastors this week telling them how we have begun live streaming the teaching portion of our Wednesday night and Sunday morning services and how we have people watching live via Facebook and YouTube that have never set foot in our church. And that the number of people tuning in was more than we usually get for a service when we were in our building. And the number has been growing with every service we live stream. I told them I realized that the Lord is using this time to reach people with the gospel and the teaching of his word more than I have seen in my lifetime through this current uh, event, okay, this sequester and so on, uh, what the devil intended for evil, God is turning around as he always does and is using for good. He's using this to get the word out. The, the devil thought, huh, I'll show him, I'll get him to close the churches down. And God said, really? Well, I will open them up via Facebook and YouTube and social media, and I'm going to get my word out even more than ever before, before this sequester. And I believe that's what he's doing. And uh, people are tuning in, and uh, many of these folks are unsaved, and uh, they're wide open to Jesus because they are generally, uh, genuinely scared about this pandemic and, uh, the, and, and because of the uncertainty of the future, and they're tuning in. They're hearing the Word of God maybe for the first time in their life, the gospel and the teaching of the Word. It's amazing to see what God is doing. So I told these pastors, let's embrace this time and use it for the glory of God. Look, in closing... Let me say once again, if human love is essential for life, how much more is God's love? Look, knowing that God loves you unconditionally and wants to live with you, and wants you to live with him eternally in his kingdom, to me is the most powerful, life-changing truth in the universe. Now look, human love often needs to be earned. It's not unconditional. It is often based on performance, as when parents' love is based on their child's obedience or on their ability to play sports or on their ability to perform academically in school. And a lot of people have grown up with parents who didn't love them unconditionally, but loved them conditionally. And now that they are adults and are Christians, they tend to bring that concept of love into their relationship with God and begin to think that, you know, God's love needs to be earned as well. This causes many to, many to think that God doesn't love them because they have failed so badly in life and therefore haven't listened 
earned his love. They haven't given God a reason to love them. So they say, how can God love me? How can he love you? Because it's his nature to love and to love unconditionally, regardless of how much we fail and blow it and don't deserve it. That is the whole message of Good Friday, which we'll celebrate next week. And the cross, that God so loved the world of sinners, failures, losers, reprobates, that he sent his only begotten son to die for them, all because he does love us and wants to save us. He doesn't want any to go to hell. He wants everyone to live with him in his kingdom in heaven someday. And listen, if God, if God commands us to love even our enemies, how much more should we love, should his love be applied to our marriages and in our relationships with our earthly families and our church families? Something to think about. Remember that God's love is a fruit of the Spirit, and all fruit contains the seeds within them to produce more fruit. When you accept God's love for you, and by that I mean when you accept Jesus into your heart as your Savior, the Spirit of God comes in, as we said, and plants God's love, fruit, in your heart. And in your heart, it begins to grow. And then as you share it with others, in other words, you sow that love into other people's lives through acts of kindness and service, God's love grows and produces more fruit and ultimately much fruit, as Jesus said, was the whole purpose he said that in John 15, verse 8. Guys, I'd like to end by sharing with you a true story about how the love of God working through one man in particular, but two men, two Christians, changed the life of a man very few, if any, thought was a life that was worth anything. Let me read it to you. It goes like this, true story. It goes like, quote, a young man cowered in the corner of a dirty, roach-infested death row cell in a southern, in a South Carolina prison. His body curled in a fetal position. He seemed oblivious to the filth and stench around him. His name was Rusty, and he was sentenced to die for the murder of a Myrtle Beach woman in a crime spree that left four people dead. Police arrested 23-year-old Rusty Welburn from Point Pleasant, West Virginia in 1970. Nine, following one of the most brutal slayings in South Carolina history. Rusty was tried for murder and received the death penalty for his crime. Bob McAllister, uh, deputy, deputy Chief of Staff of South Carolina's governor, became acquainted with Rusty on death row. Bob had become a Christian about a year or so earlier and felt a strong call from God to minister to the state's inmates, especially those spending their last days on death row. Bob's first look at Rusty revealed a pitiful sight. Rusty was lying on the floor when he arrived, a pathetic picture of a man who believed he mattered to no one. The only signs of life in the cell were the roaches that scurried over everything, including Rusty himself. He made no effort to move or even to brush the insects away. He stared blankly at Bob as he began to talk, but did not respond. During visit after visit, Bob tried to reach Rusty, telling him of the love that Jesus had for him and of his opportunity, even on death row, to start a new life in Christ. He talked and prayed continuously, and finally, 
Rusty began to respond to the stranger who kept invading his cell. Little by little he opened up, until one day he began to weep as Bob was sharing with him. On that day Rusty Wellburn, a pitiful man with murder and darkness behind him, and his own death closing in ahead of him, gave his heart to Jesus Christ. When Bob returned to Rusty a few days later, he found a new man. The cell was clean, and so was Rusty. He had renewed energy and a positive outlook on life. McAllister continued to visit him regularly, studying the Bible and praying with him. The two men became close friends over the next five years. In fact, Ms. McAllister said that Rusty grew into the son he never had, and as for Rusty, well, he had taken to calling McAllister Pap. Bob learned that Rusty's childhood in West Virginia had been anything but almost heaven. His family was destitute, and Rusty was neglected and abused as a youngster. School was an ordeal for both, for both him and for his teachers. Throughout his junior high years, he wore the same two pair of pants and two ragged shirts. Out of shame, frustration, and a lack of adult guidance, Rusty quit school in, the, in his ninth grade year, a decision that was to be just the beginning of his troubles. His teenage years were full of turmoil as he was kicked out of his home many times and ran away countless others. He spent the better part of his youth living under bridges and in public restrooms. Bob taught Rusty the Bible, but Rusty was the teacher when it came to love and forgiveness. This young man, who had never known real love, was amazed and thrilled about the love of God, uh, and he never ceased to be amazed and surprised that other people could actually love someone like him through Jesus Christ. Rusty's childlike enthusiasm was a breath of fresh air to Bob, who came to realize how much he had taken for granted especially with regard to the love of his family and friends. He goes on, knowing that God had forgiven him and desperately wanting to, uh, let me back up for a minute, guys. Um, in time, Rusty began, became extremely bothered by the devastating pain he had caused the family and friends of his victim. Knowing that God had forgiven him, he desperately wanted the forgiveness of those he had wronged. Then a most significant thing happened. The brother of the woman Rusty had murdered became a Christian. God had dealt with him for two years about his need to forgive his sister's killer. Finally, he wrote Rusty a letter that offered not only forgiveness, but the love in Christ. But love in Christ. Not long, at, not long before his scheduled execution, this brother and wife came to visit Rusty. Bob was present when the two men met and tearfully embraced like long-lost brothers finally reunited. Rusty's senseless crime ten years earlier had constructed an enormous barrier between himself and the brother. The love of Christ obliterated that barrier and enabled both men to realize that, because of Jesus, they truly were brothers reunited on that day. It was a lesson Bob would never forget. Not only did Rusty teach Bob McAllister how to live and, and how to love and forgive, he also taught him a powerful lesson about how to die. As the appointed day approached, Rusty exhibited a calm and assurance like Bob had never seen. On his final day, with only hours remaining before his 1 a.m. execution, Rusty asked McAllister to read him from the Bible. After an hour or so of listening, Rusty sat up on the side of his cot and said, You know, the only thing I ever wanted was a home, Pap. Now I'm going to get one. 
Bob continued his reading, and after a few minutes, Rusty grew very still. Thinking he had fallen asleep, Bob placed a blanket over him and closed the Bible. As he turned to leave, he felt a strong compulsion to lean over and kiss Rusty on the forehead. A short time later, Rusty Welburn was executed for murder. A woman assisting Rusty in his last moments shared this postscript of this story. As he was being prepared for his death, Rusty looked at her and said, What a shame that a man's got to wait till his last night alive to be kissed and tucked in for the very first time. End quote. Folks, there are a lot of Rusties in our country. People who have done terrible things and have been written off by society. People that everyone seems to hate and just wants to be rid of. But look how the love of God working through one man, Bob McAllister, reached out and changed this murderer and condemned criminal into a forgiven, redeemed son of God. Look at how the love of God working through a victim's brother, who allowed God's love to flow through him and extended forgiveness and love to an enemy, well, how the two became brothers in Christ. Guys, the world cannot understand this kind of love because it is supernatural. It is the love of God, and I would add, it is essential for life. If you would like to know this love in your own life, you need to pray with me right now to receive Jesus as your Savior. Remember, God is not asking you to be worthy of anything. He's not asking you to perform or do anything. He just simply wants you in your heart to reach out by faith and receive Jesus as your Savior and let the forgiveness of God that Jesus bought and paid for on Calvary's cross flood over your heart and mind and wash all your guilt and shame away and make you a new creation in Christ. All you have to do is pray to receive Jesus. Let me pray with you right now. And just repeat after me. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. Lord, I'm a sinner. I know I've done many sins in my life, terrible things I'm ashamed about. But I hear this pastor telling me that you love me and you will forgive me if I will reach out right now and by faith receive Jesus into my heart as my Lord and Savior. Father, right now I do that. I believe in Jesus. I believe that he is the Son of God who died for my sins, who rose again the third day from the dead, and I receive him right now into my heart as my living Lord and Savior. Lord Jesus, come in by the power of your Spirit. Wash me clean and use me for your glory, Lord. Fill me with your love that I could love others the way you have loved me. Lord, I ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, God bless you guys. And if you've prayed that prayer with me this morning, please contact the church. You can go online, uh, cclkrobe.org, and uh, you can uh, talk to one of the pastors. We'd love to call you back. And uh, if you have any questions, answer those questions and all. But um, we, uh, it's just our privilege to be able to come to you uh, via these live stream services. And once again, remember that we won't have Wednesday night service this week, but we will have Good Friday service at 7 p.m. and communion following. So have your elements ready. And then Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday service at 10 o'clock next Sunday. So God bless you guys. Have a great week. Talk to you soon.